Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you get the fourth and final part of the Egypt Covington series. Today you get the rundown of an interview Dwayne and Lindsay had with police in November of 2018 to try and get a better understanding of where the investigation was at and what they were doing to further it. And your jaws are about to hit the floor. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Seventeen months after Egypt was killed, Dwayne and Lindsay sat down with four people within Van Buren, including police officers, to get to the bottom of the rumors and to see where Egypt's case stood straight from the police themselves. This is what followed. The first thing the officers told them was that they'd followed up on every lead they had and said that if they had any additional leads come in, they'd continue to follow up on those as well. They said they'd followed every tip as far as they could take it and that they'd go another mile if they can and if someone would send stuff to them. This was a year and a half ago. Another officer came in and said they were following up on a few things that had come in in the last couple of weeks, saying, I don't know why they want to wait a year and a half. The officers said they were going to have to track down some people who had some new numbers and new addresses, as if this is something monumentally hard. They have access to databases I don't, and even I can track down an address and a phone number, something I've done multiple times for this case. They said that's something they were going to have to do in the next couple of weeks or days. Weeks or days for information they said had come in in the past couple of weeks, something that should have taken less than an hour. They got information about a murder investigation that's a year and a half old, and they plan to take weeks or days to track down simple contact information after complaining about how long it takes people to come forward with tips. As if the tips from the public weren't the only thing keeping this case alive with the VBPD. This is not active police work. This is reactive police work. Another person comes in and says, correct me if I'm wrong, but we haven't got a lot of tips out of this last year, which another confirms by saying, no, some cases phones are just ringing and we get all kinds of information or leads. Nothing here. This is mind blowing. Based on what they said in this interview, we, me, Kyle, my husband, Dwayne and Lindsay have gotten more leads since starting this podcast than the police department did in the year and a half following Egypt's murder. You have to ask why this is. Is it because we're finally giving the public information? Is it because people are getting to know us and know what our ultimate goal is? finding justice for Egypt and getting a murderer out of Michigan? Or do people simply trust us more than they do the VBPD? One officer said that most of the calls they were getting were from people who either didn't like Curtis or didn't like Kenny and that it's nothing they can prove. He said that it's either one side or the other because no third option has raised its head so far. 
I'm sorry. I've been on this case for a month and there's an obvious third option just by looking at the crime scene itself, let alone matching that with the multiple tips that have come in, which match the scene. It's almost like they processed the scene and then waited for the community to solve the crime for them. They wanted someone to rat or they wanted someone to confess. And until that happened, nothing was going to happen. Again, reactive police work. Dwayne asked if they've looked into a man Egypt worked for because they felt like he had an odd obsession with her and that he may have even followed her from time to time. This is someone I've actually gotten tips about, and he's someone who absolutely should have been looked into based on his relationship with her and his questionable history. An officer chimed in and said he was one of the first people they looked at, so naturally Lindsay asked if they tested his guns to see if they could be ruled out as the weapon used to kill Egypt. He told her that they'd looked into some things regarding him, that his whereabouts were established, then quickly changed the subject to Kenny and how he was the person of interest due to means, motive, and opportunity, and that no information has come in that's strong enough to pull him off of that. Then he corrected himself to say, to pull me off of that. The officers start talking about the forensic evidence they have and said that it isn't helpful. They said that the only DNA they got from the scene belonged to both Kenny and Curtis and that both of them have photos of themselves sitting on some of the areas where DNA was recovered. Based on their description, this sounds like a swab of a stationary part of Egypt's house. Sitting on would indicate a chair, a table, the floor, a bed, etc. If it were something like a piece of hair in her hands or a drink on the table, Kenny or Curtis would have to provide a reason for being there within the time frame of her murder. Lindsay asked if they had gone through Kenny and Curtis's phones, asking if they knew they both had two, to which the officers said they were collected and dumped, which means copies were made of everything on them. The problem with this was that Lindsay at the time had incorrect information. Kenny did not have two phones. He only had one. If Lindsay was telling them that Kenny had two, they should have jumped at what would have been new information. But that's not what happened. An officer just says that they went through everything and that they can't get into it and quickly changes the subject again and asks if they knew about polygraphs and then asks Dwayne and Lindsay if they'd heard the rumors about that. Someone tells you about a potential additional phone to go through and you want to talk about rumors. One of the officers talks about how Kenny was upfront with the community about how he failed his polygraph and then says, I sat in on it. I was there. I watched the interview. I interviewed him here. I know when someone's lying to me, he failed. He says that Kenny is telling people that the only reason he failed is because this officer was making him look at Egypt's autopsy photos, which he says is a lie and says that he wasn't allowed into the room until he was done and that he tried to interview Kenny afterward, but he asked for an attorney. This is where I went to Kenny to get his account of things. And according to him, he interviewed with this officer before and after his polygraph. He says the officer was not in the room when he took the polygraph test, but believes he observed. After the polygraph, Kenny says he interviewed with this officer again, along with someone else. And this is when Kenny says the officer told him that he failed his polygraph, started showing him photos of Egypt and accused him of killing her and says this is when he finally requested an attorney. According to Kenny, this officer is the one who started telling the community that he had failed his polygraph. This officer keeps on about Kenny, saying he's wanted him to come back in and be re-interviewed, but that he hasn't and says, why would you not want to come back in and speak with us? Why would you not in a year and a half give us any other suspects? 
I'm sorry, did you just ask why your person of interest wouldn't come in and give you any other suspects? You want your person of interest to give you suspects. As if, if Kenny didn't do it, it's his responsibility to find out who did and then tell the police and hope that they feel he's a reliable source of information. This is when the interview turns into the Kenny versus Curtis show. They start comparing Kenny to Curtis, saying, Curtis has been over backwards. Curtis has done everything we've asked him to do. Curtis has passed his polygraph. Curtis supplied DNA. Curtis supplied swabs at the scene. Curtis did everything we asked him to do. We get it. You really like Curtis. But you mentioned earlier in the interview that both sets of their DNA were found at the scene, which means that they had both Kenny and Curtis's DNA to compare to it, which means Kenny also supplied DNA. So calm down. The next thing they say is that Curtis acted appropriately for someone who had just lost a loved one, which we all know there's no standard for. Kenny found out about Egypt's murder in a really unusual way. He had no clue she had been killed until the following night when police picked him up from a bar, took him to the police station, put him into an interrogation room, and then broke the news. According to Kenny, the entire car ride to the police station, he was worried they were going to tell him that something had happened to his mom or his sister. When Kenny was informed about Egypt's murder, he was processing the death of his ex-girlfriend, whom he still loved, while reeling from the fear of thinking something may have happened to either his sister or his mother. And frankly, I don't think there's a handbook on how anyone processes emotions in any situation, let alone this one. That being said, I did ask Kenny how he reacted, and he says that he was in complete disbelief. He doesn't remember what he said, what he did, or whether or not he cried. He just said he was in disbelief. Lindsay calls them out on assessing grief and points out what we all know, that everyone handles it differently. They try to argue it a little further until one of them finally says they're not putting all of their eggs into one basket. So far, it sounds like they've only got one basket and they're sitting around waiting for other baskets to fall from the sky. The next topic they discuss is Egypt's dog, Ruby. Those of you who have been a part of our 9 p.m. Crime Talk Lives on Mondays have gotten to meet her. Dwayne asked the officers about Ruby and assumed she was covered in blood since theoretically she would have been with Egypt's body the entire day prior to Curtis finding her. However, one of the officers says that Ruby never interacted with Egypt's body. Ruby didn't so much as have a smudge of blood on her paw. They tell Lindsay and Dwayne that the crime scene wasn't as violent as they're probably led to believe through rumors. I've seen the photos. It's a crime scene. There was a hefty amount of blood and there was zero bloody paw prints on the scene. And while we're at it, it didn't look like there were any accidents either. No dog pee, no dog poop. So did Ruby let herself in and out of the scene the entire day while avoiding all blood or was she ever really there at all? This is a question Lindsay and Dwayne have had for a really long time. Next, they move on to Egypt's phone. Dwayne asks if they're able to get onto her phone or iPad, and again, they tell him that they won't talk about the phones. Interestingly enough, someone's been pinning things from her Pinterest account as recently as four months ago, so maybe we should be talking about it. I'll post screenshots of this in her highlight on my Instagram. Next, they ask the police why they're listing her date of death as the 23rd and not the 22nd, and they cite the 11.03 p.m. Snapchat on the 22nd about the movie as why they think she was alive then. However, that's still the 22nd, and if a gunshot was heard at 9.56 p.m., then maybe that snap wasn't even from her, but someone using her phone. To this day, no one's been able to prove that Egypt was physically alive when that Snapchat was sent. And as far as I know, no one ever went door-to-door asking if they 
they heard the same loud bang the night Egypt was killed. And when I tried getting the call history, I was denied, which, by the way, is the only time I've ever been denied. They move on to the crime scene and how quickly it was processed, and one of the officers tells Lindsay and Dwayne that Egypt's crime scene was not very big, that it didn't sprawl out into the driveway or yard, and another chimes in saying that it was basically contained or a unit. Naturally, Lindsay points out, but the door was left open, right? Yes, she's right. The door was left open. So whoever her killer or killers are, they were also in the common area between the main door and the two apartment doors and had to walk through the driveway or yard. So no, this crime scene was in no way contained to basically her unit, unless they teleported. The officers then seemed to start insinuating that this had to have been someone she knew because she was tough and into yoga, saying if someone puts hands on her and she didn't know, she's probably going to fight or whip their ass, right? And Lindsay again calls them out on that, saying, I'm tough and I'm into yoga and I can't tell you how I'd react in that situation. I might cower into a corner. You just don't know. And let me tell you, Egypt was a fighter. When someone put their hands on her, she put her hands on them. This was evident from multiple volatile relationships she'd been in. But if there's more than one person in the room and she's being bound with items from her own home, we have a much different situation. But hey, what the fuck do I know? They start talking about the next door neighbors, and we've discussed in previous episodes that we can see that Megan was at Electric Forest through photos shared on the day Egypt was killed, but Megan is only one half of the neighbors. One of the officers says that they were both at the festival a couple hundred miles away. We can pretty much prove they were there. Pretty much is on the top 10 list of turns that mean jack shit in a murder investigation. Lindsay asks what they mean by pretty much and wants to know what they can prove. She asks if the police took their phones to verify their locations, to which this officer responds with, they weren't home, okay? They weren't home. I didn't go through their phones. They were interviewed. We talked to the neighbors. Lindsay, being relentless as always, says, that's all I want to know, that you didn't go through their phones. I shit you not. This officer tells her, I'll tell you something. Bring me something I can use instead of telling me I'm not doing my job properly and I'll be a much better person. How she didn't lose her shit right then and there is what makes Lindsay a better person than me. You want the fiance of Egypt's brother to bring you evidence so you can investigate your county's homicide. Do you want Lindsay to go out and get the phones, use the state police resources to dump them, analyze their locations, then submit them to you? Because I'm pretty sure that's your job. This is where the term big mad comes into this podcast because your girl is getting heated. If it weren't for people like Lindsay and Dwayne, this case would still be exactly where it was a year and a half ago when this interview took place. Of course, at this point, the officers try to change the subject and say they're only telling them information that they're allowed to know because sensitive information was leaked early on in the investigation. What they failed to mention was that they were the source of said leak. The leaked information was the fact that Egypt was bound with Christmas lights. The only reason anyone knew about this was because instead of providing Kenny's mom with a copy of the search warrant they executed on her house, they gave her a copy of the affidavit, which revealed details of the crime only the killer should have known. It was a list of details that no one should have seen except law enforcement. So when we talk about information being leaked and possibly compromising the investigation, let's be clear that it's not coming from the community. In fact, since starting the series on Egypt, we've gotten three separate tips about the same guy who claims to be good friends with Bazzi, the detective on the case, who was also one of the people in this interview. 
This alleged friend of his brags around town about how he knows things only the police know. We were even given a specific detail about the case that we didn't know yet. It's not huge, but it's a small detail of the crime scene that wasn't in the photos from the medical examiner's office. We called this friend after the first tip came in, and he denied everything, saying his messages to a listener who sent me the screenshots were misunderstood. Let me quote him for you. Egypt was a good friend of mine, known her for 15 years, and my friend is the detective on her case, Charles Bazzi. There's way more to the story. I know the real deal. I can't text about it. Call. Let me assure you, there's no misunderstanding a fucking second of that message. He quickly backtracked after she didn't answer his call and said, I shouldn't say I know the real deal. I know as much as everyone else does from the news and stuff, but I do know that they're a very good police department and they are very good people. And I'm sure they're trying their very best. Call me. Okay, John. But then we got a second tip and it was about the exact same guy. We called him again and asked why he's so special that two people who don't know each other would come forward with the same story about him bragging about knowing more than he should about Egypt's case. At this point, he denied even knowing Egypt, contrary to his initial claim that he'd known her for 15 years. Now he said he just knew her from the bar. He also denied being friends with Detective Bazzi and that he just knew him. Unfortunately for John, in the middle of me going full Heather on him, he referred to Detective Bazzi as Chip, which is his nickname, a pretty specific nickname that it seems only a friend would call him by. When I asked if he was lying when he sent the original message or if he was lying now, he couldn't pick one. He talked in circles and over everyone, and frankly, it was one of the most obnoxious phone calls I've ever been on. It was like watching a dog trying to bite his own tail and then crying when he did. We hung up the phone. After we hung up the phone, we got a third tip about him. So like I was saying, if we want to talk about information being leaked that might impede this investigation, Lindsay and Dwayne are the least of their worries. They continue telling Dwayne and Lindsay to give them some new information, and when Dwayne gives them a tip about someone who claims to know who did it, their first question was, how long have you known that? They didn't jump out of their seats and start investigating. They asked how long he'd known that. They told Dwayne that this was something they could or should have needed to know when he got the tip because those are the tips they, the police, aren't getting. This tip wasn't some random call or message from a citizen. This was a post by someone on Facebook. And if the police were even attempting to do their job, they may have seen it. The fact that no one sent that screenshot in says a lot about the department's relationship with the community. They then start asking Dwayne what this Facebook poster's race is, how old he is, what year he graduated high school, where he lives, and Dwayne, like the rest of us listening to this, is like, uh, he should be in your records? For what it's worth, I have reason to believe this guy was questioned, and they were told that he was cleared. Now, I'm not sure what cleared means, since they didn't accuse him of the crime, just that he had indicated that he knew who did it. For what it's worth, this guy's Facebook post indicated that more than one person was involved in Egypt's murder. (laughs) 
Egypt's neighbors are brought up again, and the police say that they went into their apartment right after the homicide, where they found no furniture and, quote, unquote, little bulldogs that shit all over the house. Granted, Egypt, who was supposed to be watching them, had just been murdered, so I'm not entirely sure how fair that assessment is. They do, however, mention that five marijuana plants and one-fourth of an ounce of weed was in there. They had their medical marijuana card, so that's not the issue. The issue is that none of that was stolen when Egypt was murdered, even though their 4 by 4 front window was left open while they were out of town. If someone wanted to steal anything, they easily could have, but they didn't. Sit on that for a second. The police basically insinuate that the neighbors are nothing when it comes to this case, and Lindsay tells them that her point isn't to accuse the neighbors. Her point is that they, the police, need to keep an open mind when it comes to any new information or possibilities, and they once again bring everything back to Kenny. It's at this point that they claim eight FBI profilers from around the nation have looked at Egypt's case and everything points to this certain person. That's more profilers than the entire cast of Criminal Minds. That's a whole lot of profilers for a department that can't seem to dump a phone. Lindsay actually asks the question, who were they? As in, who were the profilers? And I shit you not, the officer responded with, they're the FBI profilers. They're the latest and the greatest. The officer then says that he lives with this case every day and that it's important to him, just like it's important to Egypt's family, and says that if he could hand this over to somebody right now and say, hey, great, here you go. If you can put this guy in prison, then do it. So Lindsay naturally asks him, okay, can you do that? And he literally says no, which is bullshit. They can ask the state for assistance in any case. He tells Lindsay that the state police don't have any more expertise in interviewing than their guys do, which is frankly an insult to the state police and an insult to Lindsay and Dwayne's intelligence. This case is far bigger than interviewing skills. It's reviewing a crime scene. It's looking at all angles. It's keeping an eye and an ear on the community. It's being proactive and corroborating alibis, something I was able to do for Curtis three years after the fact. They say that no credible leads have led them away from their person of interest and then mentions a specific item saying there's no reason whatsoever why someone's DNA or strand of hair should be there. But if they had that strand of hair and they've said Kenny and Curtis's DNA were both in places that could be explained and we're assuming they're talking about the strand of hair found in Egypt's hand, then it must not belong to either Curtis nor Kenny, right? Or do they not know who it belongs to? And if they don't know, why? Is it because it came back to someone whose DNA isn't in the system or is it just because it hasn't been tested at all? Lindsay asks when this specific piece of evidence will come back because it's been 17 months at the time of this interview, and she's told when it goes to trial, if it goes to trial. That's not how this works. If you're talking about this piece of evidence as if it's including or excluding anyone, that means you have it back, correct? DNA results don't wait for one day maybe trials. You use DNA to get a charge that leads to a trial. This entire interview is such a shit show and exactly why we're spending almost an entire episode going over just how poorly it was handled. One of the officers in the room gives this absurd analogy about why Curtis and Kenny's DNA at the scene isn't helpful, and I agree. They both had reasons to be there. He's correct. It's not helpful, so that's not the issue. But listen to this. He says... 
Your house gets broken into. Your next door neighbor, Bob, is a heroin addict and a crackhead. And you know damn well the only person who knew you were going up north for the weekend was him. So police detect the scene and they find fingerprints. Well, you know he did it because he's the only person who knew you were going to be gone and there were really no signs of forced entry, but you always leave this window open. He went through the upstairs window. I'm sorry. (laughs) The police find fingerprints in the house, but he says, well, yeah, I was in her house. I've been over there, been at her house two or three times. I know he did it. You know he did it. I just can't prove it in a court of law. What the fuck did I just hear? No, the fuck you don't know he did it. All you know is that his fingerprints were found in a house he's been in before and a house that was unoccupied with a fucking window open. This is literally the best analogy he could come up with, and it was an embarrassment to police work. No shit, you can't prove that in a court of law. You couldn't prove that in charades. And these are the people responsible for solving murders in Van Buren. God bless America. It didn't take long for them to go on a huge Kenny rant again about how he didn't want Egypt moving in with Curtis and because he knew the Kodor apartment, that must be what happened and that all their physical evidence points to him. And in the next breath, they negate their physical evidence by saying all the evidence at the scene that would lead to Kenny can be explained by the fact that he lived there for a period of time. And if that's the case, don't they have the same evidence for Kenny as they do for Curtis? And there's no focus on Curtis at all. Remember, they didn't even call his daughter or his daughter's mother to verify his story prior to finding Egypt. It's all on Kenny. And they keep going back to that polygraph, which they say he failed miserably. However, another source said it was actually inconclusive. Frankly, the scene, as we discussed earlier, leads me to believe that more than one person was in the house when Egypt was killed, which negates both Kenny and Curtis as single killers. When you add in Kenny's GPS locations, all the back and forth about Kenny and or Curtis seem like a giant waste of everyone's time. And anytime Lindsay or Dwayne bring up any other people who had had means, motive, or opportunity to kill Egypt, they keep going back to Kenny, even though they admit that they have nothing to prove he did it. And frankly, it doesn't seem like they're proactively working on anything to prove or disprove that him or anyone else did it. The next topic that comes up is the neighbor reporting hearing that gunshot or car backfiring at 9.56 p.m. One of the officers chimes in with, if the neighbors say they heard a gunshot at 9.56, how is she sending text messages between text messages between 9.56 and 11.03? My brain is exploding that it has never crossed his mind that someone else may have used Egypt's phone to text Curtis and post that Snapchat. It wouldn't be the first time that's happened, and it won't be the last. We saw it in the Monica Moynan case. This isn't uncommon. After that embarrassment of a comment, Lindsay and Dwayne just simply request that police keep Tina, Egypt's mother, in the loop with what's going on in the case. The officers tell them that, unfortunately, they didn't know that Chuck's wife at the scene that night wasn't Egypt's mother, and that's why Tina wasn't notified. They said they didn't know Tina was Egypt's mother until 24 hours after the fact. As infuriating as that is, I did some research on death notifications, and it's pretty common to only notify one next of kin, and if Chuck came to the scene, he would have been that next of kin. But then they say that Tina was leaking information about the case in the beginning of the investigation, which is bullshit because the only pertinent information that was leaked in this case was about those Christmas lights. And that was due to a massive flop by the police department, not Tina. So Lindsay calls him out on it, saying, are you sure it was her? To which an officer responds that he's pretty sure. Lindsay points out that being pretty sure is different than being sure. The officer asked her if she wants him to say that he's 100 percent sure. And she says, yeah. 
And he literally says, how can anybody say 100%? So this is how you do that. You look at facts. Facts are 100% correct. You find the fact, you state the fact. You are 100% correct. So Lindsay tells him not to lay blame if he's not 100% sure. And they finally say that they can't be sure that it was Tina who leaked whatever information they were talking about. I know this case like the back of my hand and almost nothing was reported about it for months. The three details that finally came out were that Egypt had been shot, then that she had been shot in the head, and then that she had been bound with Christmas lights. The only detail that would have been one they could have kept close to the vest as something only her killer would know would have been about the Christmas lights. But alas, they gave the wrong paperwork to their person of interest mother during a search warrant and in turn the entire world found out about it. So maybe it's time they redirect their frustration about leaked information. Towards the end of the interview, Lindsay makes the comment about how she wishes Egypt had just had some kind of video camera in her house, which I think we all do. Then we wouldn't all still be here searching for and demanding justice. But one of the officers' response to Lindsay's comment was, video of smoking weed and drinking beer all day? All right, I don't want video in my house. Are you kidding me? Two hours of trying to talk about how to solve a murder, and instead of agreeing that a video camera could have solved this case by now, you belittle the victim into a life of smoking weed and drinking beer all day, as if that's all Egypt did, as if that's all she was. The interview wraps up, and as you can tell, it accomplished absolutely nothing other than making it painfully obvious that the investigation into this case by the VBPD was a shit show and an embarrassing one at that. You'll be pleased to know that last week, the state police were finally brought in to assist on the case and had a two-hour meeting with both Lindsay and Dwayne, where they were able to give them all the information they'd gathered in the last three years and all the tips that have come in from you guys in the last month of this podcast. The state police were finally contacted by Van Buren around the time of the protest that happened the week before our first episode about Egypt aired. In case you didn't catch that, that means that your voices were heard. All of you who attended, all of you who signed the petition to have the case handed over to the state police, all of you who have demanded justice for Egypt, your voices were heard and we now have a department we can trust looking into her murder. Now, I'll say they're only assisting at this point, but let me tell you, they seem to be taking this case more seriously than anyone else has up until this point. Egypt would have turned 31 yesterday, but instead of celebrating her birthday with her friends and family, a Zoom birthday party was held for her where anyone who wanted to join could raise a glass in her honor. We're at the point in our investigation into Egypt's murder where anything else I tell you could possibly jeopardize the case, so we've had to entrust those tips and details with the authorities and wait. But this time, I don't think we'll be waiting three years for justice. Egypt's case is closer to being solved than it's ever been, and it's because of you marching and protesting, listening and sharing, and being brave enough to reach out with information you've heard that we've been able to piece together what we believed happened to Egypt the night she was killed. And hopefully, her killer or killers will be behind bars before her next birthday. I will continue to work on Egypt's case with Lindsay and Dwayne and update you guys as it progresses. And as soon as there are updates, you guys will be the absolute first people to know about it. But until then, we sit and we wait and we take comfort in knowing that her case is now also in the hands of the Michigan State Police.
For all photos, diagrams, and maps pertaining to this case, check out Egypt's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. And join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern for Crime Talk Live, where you go live with me, Kyle, Lindsay, and Dwayne, and we talk about everything Egypt. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.